morning. I want to welcome you who are here inside and you who are outside under the tent. Uh, good to be with God's people together. And uh, I want to invite you, if you will turn in your bulletin or look on the screen, we're going to say, uh, read these words from 1 John chapter 3 together. Uh, a couple words of introduction before we do so. We're in a summertime series on the book of 1 John. And I, I love John. He's like listening to, your, to an, an older man who sometimes says things over and over, but says things with such clarity. And I find him like, he, this was one of Jesus' best friends. And at this point in his life, he is a wise, older pastor, and he speaks to, this, to the churches of the New Testament era. Like this is a circular letter. It was passed around. And he speaks to them about something which I think is so critical for us. He asks, he's sort of helping the church answer this question, how do you know that you're a child of God? And he keeps giving it these kind of tests, and it's almost like he knows us. You know, it's like he knows we're people who struggle with this. And it's actually normal for Christians to struggle, and yet it's so important for us to engage that struggle. How do we know that we know? How do we know that we are a child of God? And, you know, I think that this is really important. It has a lot of implications for us. If you struggle with assurance of salvation, that means you're going to struggle in other areas. It means you're going to struggle to pray boldly. It means you're going to struggle to take risks for the Lord. It means you're going to struggle to give generously or to serve in sacrificial ways. It means you're going to struggle in lots of ways that really hamper your joy and your freedom. And so I love it that this old pastor is addressing this. I, I love it. He, he's saying, this is so important that you do this. You know, I, I think about this. A good father doesn't want his kids uh, to question all the time whether he loves them or not. I mean, you know, what, what would it be like, just play a little thought experiment with me. Um, when I go on a, way, on, on a trip, I don't say to my kids, hey, daddy will be back soon, or he might not. <laughs> you never know. Maybe he's not really your daddy. Maybe he's got another family somewhere else that he loves more than you. Or, you know, uh, you'll just have to wait and see. You know, and if you're really good, I might come back or not. Right? I mean, that, what, a, what, a, what a terrible uh, thing to say to your kids. And our Heavenly Father wants us to know. He doesn't want us uh, to question. You know, I, th I think about that with my own children. If, if my children are wrestling over and over with whether their father loves them, uh, that may turn for a short period of time into fear-based obedience. But over time, it will turn into father-loathing rebellion. And so it's really important that we know. You know, love for God grows only, really, in the assurance of love for God. And, and today's test is number three. I'm, I'm doing these every time I preach this summer. Test number three is the family resemblance test. So if you've been around our church for a while, uh, sometimes we, we have a lot of kids in our church. And sometimes you can, it's, it's hard to, you know, you can be like, I'm not sure whose kid that is, but I think, I think that's a Peterson. You know, I, I tell by the, the stance, the, you know, or the laugh or the like way they talk, or you're like, that, 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 that's an askew right there. That's a spickered. You know, I had somebody, one of my kids works at Chick-fil-A in Cameron Village, and somebody asked him, I, are you a Bradford Right? And how do they know that? They're asking because of family resemblance. They're asking because you look like the family. So 
as we turn to God's word today, this is the test for us. Do we know and are we growing in family resemblance? Let's look at this together. So we're going to 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. We're going to read this aloud together as is our practice. 3, 2, 1. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Man, that's a hard passage. And one of the things, though, that I love about going through 1 John is that 1 John is sort of like he's writing a commentary on his gospel. And they go back and forth. It always makes me think of stories in the gospel of John when I read 1 John. And like with this one, too. This passage makes me think very much of the story from John 8, where John recounts the woman who's caught in adultery. Now, if you don't know that story, this is how this goes. Um, Jesus is in the temple. And like the practice of rabbis in his day, the rabbi is teaching. Jesus is in the temple teaching, and he's squatted down. And the audience is sort of standing around him. And they drag in this woman, the religious leaders, drag in this woman into the temple and throw her before Jesus on the ground. Now, she's caught, it says, in the very act of adultery. We don't know where the guy was, right? It takes two to do that, right? But she's caught, dragged in in her shame, in her fear, and thrown before a rabbi. Now, what's, this, this, this is a very tension-filled moment because this is a test for Jesus but it's way more than a test for this woman. This is trial. This is uh, execution is coming. And they asked Jesus the question, what should we do with this woman? You know what it says in the law of Moses, that we should kill her for her sin. And, and Jesus, John records, is just sort of staying there on the ground, and he's riding in the dirt. He's just drawing in the dirt. Um, and finally, he responds to them. He says, um, oh, and, and let me just say this. This is a test for him because if, if Jesus says, oh, you know, we shouldn't obey the law of Moses, then it's not just her execution, but it's his too. But Jesus says something unique and powerful here. He says, Jesus sat there drawing, and then finally he looks up at the, the people around them. And he says, anybody um, who hasn't sinned, they get to throw first. They get to pick up the rock first and beat her to death with it. And slowly, it says, one by one, they walked away. And finally, Jesus gets up from where he's sitting. And he comes over to the woman. And I've got to imagine this scene where he looks in her eyes 
And he reaches down and lifts her up, grabs her by the hand. And he says, where are they? Has nobody condemned you? And she says, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, that's my outline for this passage this morning. Beloved children, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, this passage that we read from 1 John, like I said, it's really a commentary on this gospel over and over again. And he says something here in verse 7. I want you to make sure you notice. Two little words. They're repeated throughout this book. Little children. In fact, it's, it's a repetition. Uh, there are two little phrases that are kind of bounced back and forth in John's, John's um, letter here. He says, little children seven times. He calls them beloved six times. Back and forth, he keeps using these phrases. I wonder why John uses that. Why does he keep repeating that? I think it's because that's how God relates to us. Beloved little children. Our little ones are beloved, aren't they? I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love this church and all the kids in this church, even when they're loud and squirmy, even when we can hear the uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth from the hallway right here, or running around under the tent, our little ones are beloved. Yeah, they're precious to us. You know, this past week I was flying back from our denomination's uh, annual gathering, General Assembly in St. Louis, and I was stuck in the Charlotte airport. Flight was delayed, and you know what happens when a flight gets delayed for a long time? You can just feel the natives are getting restless, right? And it's just people are getting upset, and you can feel that growing. People keep going up to the counter and asking the questions that the the people behind the counter can't answer, like, when are we going to take off? How long is this going to be? You know, and you can tell, like, the mood in the room is just grumbling and anger. And then something remarkable happened that changed everything. It was bizarre to watch. There's this giant guy, I mean, really tall, skinny guy, huge dreads, you know, sleeveless shirt. And I watch him running around. And then I realize he's chasing a toddler. And this toddler has a pacifier in his mouth, and he's just squealing. And he's going up and down, running away from his dad. And you can just watch this little chase going on, and it completely alters the mood in the concourse. Suddenly, like waiting, it's not that bad. We're all sort of front row seat to what's happening with this father and child. This just raucous play, this joy. You know, why is it? Beloved little children. This is a beloved child. And Jesus, isn't it Jesus that said, if we love our children that way, how much more the Father in heaven? That's how I am with my boys. You know, um, there are only six people in the whole world. Lots of people call me pastor. Only six people in the world call me daddy. And that is a special treasured word for me. You know, I remember um, years ago, uh, we were dealing with one of our guys. We were having a lot of trouble with him. But I knew things were okay because at 16, he would still come and sit in my lap when I was in the kitchen. You know, I loved that. I loved that. I loved that when my boys call me daddy. You know, I, I, I love it when they want my full attention or my praise or my delight. It, it fills my heart to give it. And Jesus said, didn't he say, like, if that's how we are with our children, how much more the Father in heaven Beloved little children. Jesus, you know, is the writer John Owen who said, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest 
unkindness you, do, you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. Do you know that? I mean, do you really know that's how God relates to you? I mean, you're like, yeah, sure. No, no, that's not what I mean. Do you know it? I mean, this is how Jesus relates to the woman caught in adultery. Um, she's the beloved of God. I mean, Jesus not only doesn't condemn her, he moves toward her. I don't know if we realize this passage, that passage is kind of very familiar in Christian circles. In, a, in the first century, a rabbi would not speak to his wife in public, much less another woman, much less a sinner, a notorious sinner in the middle of the temple. I mean, just incredible tenderness in Jesus toward this woman. You know, this is no ordinary rabbi. This is, as we read in Colossians, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and visible, thrones, dominion, rulers, and authorities. All things were created by him and for him, and he is the image of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Donald Guthrie said, you know, it's one thing to know. It's easy to know the knock of a beggar at the door versus the knock the, brush, the rush, rushing in of a child. You know, it says knock a, the knock of a beggar at the door will be low, timid, hesitating. It seems to say, I have no claim on the kindness of this house. You know, how different from a child returning home from school, getting off the bus, busting in, so happy to tell you about his day. He says, the bounding step, the joyous rush of the child into the the father or the mother's presence. This is how God relates to us. This, you know, it's, it's no surprise. I think John really embraced this. In his gospel, you know what he called himself? The beloved disciple. I mean, is that how you self-identify? We're in an age of self-identification. Do you identify as the beloved? How do we know, know that we are beloved of God? Look at, John tells us, he says, we've been delivered from Sin, we've been delivered from the devil, and we've been demarcated as the children of God. So God says to you here this morning, just like he said to that woman, neither do I condemn you. Look at verses 4 and 5, delivered from sin. Let's make sure we all understand what we're talking about when we talk about sin. I'm not sure we always do. You know, we have to make, we have to make this uh, teaching really regular in our house when our children were small. The difference between Sins and mistakes. You know, somebody spills their milk at dinner. We, we would have kids who would confess that as sin during our family worship time. That's not a sin. That's a mistake. So, parents, I hope you're taking notes on this one, okay? Um, spilling your milk at dinner. Mistake or sin? Mistake, right. And what do we say when we make a mistake? I'm sorry. But what do we say when we sin? Please Forgive me. There's a big difference. I want to define sin this way, just like John does. Sin is saying no to God. He says sin is lawlessness. Sin is saying no to God. So kids who are here, please remind your parents of this. Right? It's not okay to be angry at our kid with mistakes. We should say everybody makes mistakes. That's what we expect. But sins, we take those to God. We confess them to one another. Sin is lawlessness. 
Rebellion. It's defiance against our king. It's saying, I hate you and I hate your law. It's saying no to God. Um, the B.D. Abawewao says this, it's, it's being an outlaw against God. And because our predicament is so great as outlaws, look what it says in verse 5. This is what Jesus does. This is our rescue. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Joachim is almost here, John the Baptist, at the Jordan River, when he first sees Jesus coming to him, he's like, the Lamb of God! How awesome is that? He's coming to take away the sins of the world. Can you believe it? I mean, he's not like mad about this. He is like, woo, right? Celebrating the Lamb of God. You know, I read this recently. One day a, a bee flew into the car while the family's taking a, a, a trip. And it was one of those nice spring days when it's, you, you got the windows down. So the bee flies into the window and the kid in the back seat and the, the car seat is, starts screaming, like scared, you know, scared of the bee. And finally, the dad who's driving manages to grab the bee in his hand and he squeezes it. He squeezes it and then it lets it go and it keeps buzzing around. And the kid starts screaming again. You know, it's like quiet for a second, screaming again. And the dad turns around and opens up his palm and say, look. You know, you can stop screaming. That's the stinger right there. Right? He can make a lot of noise, but he can't sting you. The Bible tells us that God took in Jesus the sting of death for sin on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, right? It says this, The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus can say to you, Neither do I forgive you. I mean, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I, can I, do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. The only one who could condemn Jesus Christ is the one who took the sting of death for us. See, John also tells us now we're delivered from sin. We're also delivered from the power of the devil. This is really maybe uh, weird to modern ears. Look at verses 7 and 8. Um, if sin is personal enemy number one, then Satan is public enemy, number one. Uh, Christians are fighting, like Brian said earlier, kind of a two-front war. We have an internal foe, our sin. We have an external foe, Satan. Both of them are against us. And yet, we're, listen to verse 8. This is one of the clearest explanations in all of the Bible about Jesus and his relationship to the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's like Jesus went into enemy territory and snuck behind enemy lines and did this huge recon of, uh, and, and event that like ended up destroying, um, cutting out the legs underneath the power of the devil. John Piper says it this way. He says, Christmas happened, Jesus coming, because God aims to destroy something. We don't think about that at Christmas, do we? <laughs> we don't have little uh, guerrilla warfare sets that we're putting up. Like, Jesus showed up to destroy something. God's infiltrating of a rebel planet was in search on a search and destroy mission. This is why verse 5 and 8 are parallel. Came to destroy sin, deliver us from the devil. Those things go together by means of his atonement. Sin's penalty has been paid for. By his resurrection, sin's power has been dealt a, a, a death blow. And at his second coming, it will be completely eradicated. This is our hope. 
It's funny, early church baptism rites. I remember reading this when I was in seminary. In the early church, you know what they did a lot of times at con- conversion of an adult and they baptized them? They had these weird, this weird uh, phrase that's kind of absent from modern church liturgy. They said this, Do you renounce the devil and all his works in vain, and the vain pomp and glory in the world? And they would say, the, bab- the person being baptized would be like, I do, and turn around and spit over their shoulder. And why were they doing that? They're like, I'm spitting in the devil's face, right? Jesus won. Jesus won in the past, and he's really winning in the now, and he will eradicate all the work of the devil in the future. Right? This is what, you turn around and spitting in his face. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The, the, the Jeff Bradford paraphrase of this is, sign sealed, delivered. I'm yours, Jesus. <laughs> right? The devil's gone. This is why Jesus can say, now neither do I condemn you. The only one who could condemn is the one who has defeated the power of the devil. But now there's no condemnation, right? This is, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. You're going to stand up, turn around, spit over your shoulder. Let's go, okay? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Like, well, I don't want to clean that up later. Aaron's going to be mad at me. Um, but it's true. Delivered from the power of the devil. You know, that's how we ought to think about that. And therefore demarcated as the children of God. This is what Mark preached on last week, 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. I can hear him shouting that part, right? I feel like he's shouting that part out. And that's what we are. A couple years ago, our family went on a trip to Yosemite National Park out in California, and we hiked Half Dome, which if you don't know what that is, it's like somebody took a big mountain and just cut it in half. And so you hike up. It's a forever hike to get to the top of Half Dome. When you get there, it's exhausting. But then what's really startling is the edge. Because I've never been anywhere near an edge of anything that scary. And I'm a little afraid of heights. I'm really afraid of Half Dome. Like, so we get up there, and I'm like looking over the edge. And it's, it's just you can't really see the bottom. And I think that when we, when we step into passages like this, it's like we're coming up to the edge of glory in heaven and staring down into the very heart of God. And it's almost more than we can comprehend. Right? This is what God has done for us. We're, we're gazing into the very heart of God. And I want you to banish all the kind of human stuff that we do with God and Jesus. Where we're like, oh, Jesus sort of dutifully fulfilled what God wanted him to do. He kind of begrudgingly went to the cross He did it sort of against his... No, no, no. This is the very heart of God for people. This kind of incredible love. I mean, this is the heart of God we're peering into because God the Father from all creation willed to create a people who would want to come and sit in his lap. Children of God. That, my friends, is what we are. As John says, that's what we are. That is what we are. So listen to your Savior this morning. Beloved children, therefore, I don't condemn you. But then there's one more part. This is the hard part of the passage. Go and sin no more. If you were listening closely as you read the words aloud, you should have been disturbed. Anybody disturbed this morning reading these? Like verse 6 and verse 9, it gets a little weird here, right? Like no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one 
keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him, known him. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, for he has been born of God. Let's talk about what this doesn't mean. John is not undoing everything he said earlier in the book. In John 1, he says, you know, um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we're liars. You know, like the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things so you may not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's not saying Christians never sin. But what does he mean by this? The translation of the Greek in the ESV helps us. That little word, practice. Right? No, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning. No one who makes a practice of sinning. This is um, that the most often word repeated in that section is practice. You know, you know this. Remember you're a kid, your mom or dad would say to you, or especially your piano teacher, practice makes perfect, right? Practice makes perfect. Um, that statement's a truism. Right? What you practice is what you reinforce in your life. What you practice is what you reinforce in your life. This is why you have to practice piano in order to play proficiently. This is why you have to practice baseball. And you know, nobody wakes up one morning and throws a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. right? It has to be practiced. Muscle memory. You have to build that in. And conversely, there are lots of things you don't have to practice, and you're really good at them. Selfishness. Anybody really good at selfishness? I may be the best, right? Right here. Uh, you know, lying. Um, gossiping. Hating. But here's John's test for children of God. Here's one of the ways you know. Here's one of the ways you know. A transformed person is growing. They're learning to practice new things. They're practicing new things in their life. Practicing new virtues. You remember John 8? Remember what Jesus says? Look, neither do I condemn you. And then he adds, go and sin no more. That is a crazy statement for today. Right, we live in a culture that's like, I like the first part of that, but not so much the second part of that. Jesus, can we erase that or change that? I mean, this is what we want. We want in our culture an anything goes kind of faith where God, Jesus says, neither do I consent, uh, condemn you. Go on, have a great day. Go on your way. But I want you to remember, this woman, and this is, I'm stepping on toes, this woman was a sexual sinner, as well as the man who wasn't dragged into public. And if there's anything that's off limits in America today, it's saying, you know, uh, I can, somebody's telling me that something's wrong to do with my body. Right? Like we live in a culture that's like, anything goes, as far as, or as far as that is. I'm amazed even to see the heights and lengths to which people go to reinterpret passages of Scripture that say really clearly things that they've said for thousands of years. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to Gumby Jesus that someone gave me, right? Um, Gumby Jesus, okay, if you don't know what Gumby is, you can look it up when you get home, but Gumby Jesus, we can move around and shape in whatever we want him to do, right? And this is where we are, is that in our culture, is, there's a lot of people like, I want a Jesus who never condemns always accept, accepts, but never tells me, never challenges me or tells me I can't do something. Like never says, go and sin no more. And when we do that, we think we're being super compassionate. We think we're being really loving to like want that kind of a Jesus. But are we more compassionate than Jesus? Because let's think about his love. I mean, the real gospel of Jesus is grace 
and truth together. It's grace and truth. Jesus doesn't say, neither do I condemn you. Go and, go and have a great day. That's lawlessness, as described in this passage. Nor does he say, you know, if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. That's legalism. The gospel says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's acceptance, neither do I condemn you, with an, an agenda for change. Go and sin no more. Acceptance with an agenda for change. That's what gospel discipleship is. And if you think about that, isn't that actually an outgrowth of God's love for his children? I mean, how many parents would say, I love my kids, I never really want them to grow. I never really want them to mature. I'm not looking for responsibility or ownership of life's decisions or independence at some point. No, no, no sane parent would say that. We want for our own children that they would grow. They would become different over time. So here's how you know you're, you're a child of God. Two things. One, are you growing in confidence of God's love for you? No, that's not linear. There are days when that goes up and, up and down. But are you growing in confidence of God's love for you? And two, are you growing to become like the family traits, in a family resemblance? Are you growing to be more and more like Jesus? No one who names himself as Jesus' Savior should put up with prevailing patterns of sin, should put up with those. If you've been a Christian for years and you're just as anxious, just as greedy, uh, just as lustful, just as angry as you were, uh, stubborn as you were, you should be asking questions. Am I growing? Is this is this? Is this happening in my life? Why is that? Because living things grow. Living things grow. They change. And, and yes, you may struggle for the same years with this one particular besetting sin. And sometimes the Spirit allows that to happen so we learn dependence upon Him. But there should be growth somewhere in other parts of your life. There should be some growth. A real Christian cannot not grow over time. This is one of the things that the Spirit works in us. You know, Here's the difficult thing, though. It's hard to tell if you're growing. Has anybody ever felt this before? Am I growing? I don't know. Like, it's hard for you to evaluate you. Um, this is one of the reasons I think John wrote, writes this, not to individual Christians, but to a community of people. Because it is in community, in relationship, that we can evaluate your own growth. It's with, only with other people that you can see what's happening with you. Because growth is gradual, right? You know, I've read that even trees grow during the wintertime in times when they look dormant. To my side, I'm like, nothing is happening with that tree. It's still growing. And, and this is why we need other people. Did you ever have that um, aunt, great aunt, uh, somebody, grandma, somebody you didn't see very often? And they would see you every, every couple of months or every couple of years, and they'd say, my, how you've grown. What are they feeding you? And you're, you're like, oh, I, didn't, I, I don't know. You know, like, I didn't realize I was getting bigger, you know. And, it, and that's one of those things that the body of, your body of Christ people are for. This is one of the great gifts of being a part of the body of Christ. You need people who are saying, my, how you've grown. What are you feeding on? What, what are you growing in? Um, if I ask you this right now, uh, are you growing in family re resemblance to God? A lot of you would say no. You're struggling. You may feel really flat and kind of dead. Um, 
But let me stop preaching and start meddling a little bit this morning. Um, I want to invite you. Our church is open for business. And one of the hard things I've heard from so many people this year during COVID is just the disruption of relationships. Many of us feel isolated in ways we didn't before. We feel disconnected from one another. We feel like I'm not really growing. Not really, I feel really stagnant in my faith. The biggest thing that you need is one another. You know, church isn't this. It's not the show. It's this, the relationships. It's God working among his people. And I just want to call you back. I want to call you back. I know you're like, I'm here this morning. I'm I'm calling you in in relationships back. You know, our, our our men's ministry is fully up and up operational. Our, men, our women's ministry is doing tons of stuff with one-to-one Bible reading. Our, you know, we're, we're, we're gathering. And I know I don't want to infringe upon anybody's comfort level, but I do want to encourage you. You need the body of Christ. You need one another. Um, let me close with this. You know, uh, acorns, we're going to see acorns all across Raleigh this fall. Some of you are like, I'm sick of acorns. All I do is clean up my backyard full of acorns. Uh, Raleigh is known as the city of oaks, right? Um, I want you to think about acorns. One of the things, uh, there's a guy named G. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, you know, you think about acorn versus concrete slab. He says, you know, which one's going to win? Acorn every time. He was looking at a, a concrete slab on the sidewalk, and he says, you know, this, he's watching the roots penetrate through concrete and break concrete. The power of the little life in the acorn. You know, acorn is slow growth. It's difficult to see, but it's incredible power. An oak tree is in small form in that acorn. And over time, it will become what it's supposed to be. And so the spirit that is planted in you, if you're a child of God, this life that's in you, and right now you're like, I'm so discouraged. I don't know what's going on. There seems to be a concrete slab over my life right now. The Spirit of God um, in His children will break through that. In this life or the next. But in this life, we expect breakthroughs. We're looking for growth. We're looking to see how that seminal form of God's work in you will grow up to a tiny, I mean, from a tiny seed into a gigantic tree. You know, acorns grow really because. Um, they love God. That's a weird thing to say. But everything in nature becomes what it is supposed to be in, the, in our Creator. An, an oak tree is its, in its glorious form what an acorn is in its smallest. And I want to encourage you this morning, beloved children of God, He delights so much in you. And He longs to work deeply in your life. Let's turn to him in prayer this morning. Father, I'm just I'm so burdened for our congregation. I know the sense of discouragement and isolation, of frustration, the way, Lord, that we feel, many of us, stuck and cold, uh, isolated from one another. Lord, we pray that you would stir us up this morning. Grow in us that confidence in, in, our, in the love of the Father that would build assurance and therefore blossom into joy in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would work, 
Lord, in, in us, in, Lord, that you would grow your purposes in us. Lord, for many of us, we're dealing with besetting sins, places that are hidden. We pray, Father, that, Lord, you would use your body of Christ people in our lives to fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray that we would grow, that we would take on the family resemblance. Lord, would you do that among this little body of Christ, this church? Father, we need hope this morning. And Lord, it's, we come, therefore, as people needy to your table, hungry for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.